And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Ellendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. Venema from Mid-America Reformed Seminary, where he is the president. Dr. Venema, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Well, it's a privilege for me. I'm happy to do it. I've done it before. I enjoyed it then. I hope I enjoy it again. <laughs> we have an exciting subject to talk about today, and it's about our Lord Jesus Christ. He is Lord, and he wants us to know that he's Lord over everything. So maybe we could talk about his lordship, and maybe you can get us started and share with us uh, your thoughts on that. Well, when you think of the lordship of our Lord Jesus Christ, I think we often go to the idea of authority, and we would say, for example, when our Lord, upon his resurrection, appears to the disciples, gives them the Great Commission, declares that he has been glorified and will be seated at the Father's right hand and possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. I think we also need to remember that uh, lordship is very closely associated redemptively with a work whereby we have been purchased, as the scriptures say, with the precious blood We've been placed under renewed ownership through sin. We transgressed, lost communion and fellowship with God, went our own way through redemption. The Lord Jesus Christ purchases us for himself. We now belong to him, body and soul, and as his prized possession are called to honor him and offer ourselves, as Paul says in Romans, to him, as a living sacrifice of thanksgiving. And um, our Lord Jesus then has complete reign and dominion over our life. Uh, He's redeemed it. Uh, There's nothing we should hold back from him. I assume then he also has complete dominion over this world as well. Well, you know, the Apostle Paul makes it, very clear in a marvelous passage in Colossians 1, when he says that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, uh, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, and he says for him. They are all not only his creation, but they belong to him and are to glorify and acknowledge to the extent possible that he is, in fact, both the creator and the redeemer. He is before, he says, sometimes it's translated, he is preeminent uh, before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. I think if you parse out that very rich and profound language, seems to me impossible to diminish the richness and the fullness of what belongs to, both in creation and in redemption, the theme of the preeminence, the lordship and reign, rule, rule and grace, and as well in power of the Lord Jesus Christ, that terminology, firstborn of all creation, as in it, the idea of it belongs to him as his proper possession. It's owned by him. And wherever anything in the creation 
doesn't recognize where possible and acknowledge and seek to recognize his preeminence, we have the presence and power remaining of sin, uh, the kingdom of darkness, over against the kingdom of light. Right. I'm thinking from a, uh, just a simple personal perspective, too. Um, a man or woman may go to work, and um, they hear in church that Jesus is Lord. We all confess it. We say the words. I, I wonder sometimes if we miss how thoroughly he is Lord. And uh, we have no problem with the confession, or so we think. <laughs> Let's say an engineer goes into work and um, he or she has to design something. Um, should they be thinking about or cognizant of at least the lordship of Christ in their engineering work? Oh, absolutely. I recognize that it's often difficult to express and articulate exactly what that means precisely. But at the at a minimum, it has to mean that I recognize that there's not a, a disjunction between my identity as a person who is by grace in Christ and indwelt of his spirit, who worships and serves the Lord on Sunday, listens to his word, and seeks by the spirit to live accordingly. There's not a disjunction between that. I don't take off my... Christ cap and enter into a world where he's no longer present, and that relationship that I have as one who belongs to him is set aside, I seek, you know, that language I used from Paul in Romans chapter 8, or rather chapter 12, that we're to, in view of God's mercy, it's priestly language, and it's not a priesthood when we offer, in view of God's mercy, our bodies, that language itself is a kind of, to use a theologian's term, a synecdoche. It refers to the whole of who we are as creatures redeemed by grace. Your body is your very self, and all that you do in the body, in the world. So whether it be engineering, whether it be the cultivation of the soil and the raising of the crop as a farmer, what you do as a father in your home, or a mother, a child, son or daughter, um, in all areas of your life, this is our Father's world, and He gives it uh, to His Son, who is the rightful inheritor of all things, as the firstborn of all creation. And so I have to think through and be cognizant. I have to be quite intentional in my life as a believer, whatever my particular vocation, uh, how is this advancing the interests of Christ's Lordship and his claim upon my life? How does it serve and glorify God? How does it serve and advance the interests of fellow believers, but not only fellow believers, other persons with whom I have association or who bear God's image? Uh, I'm a new creature in Christ, and so I'm being brought by the Spirit to live that kind of life for which I was first created, a life in service to God, a life in God's name in service to others. And all of that belongs to our spiritual service, our 
discerning of God's good and perfect and holy will? Uh, what does it mean for me? And you fill in the blank, whatever your particular vocation. Uh, what does it mean for me in this vocation, this calling, even the idea of vocation means I'm not a free agent. I've been summoned, gifted, authorized, empowered by someone to do a particular task. In fact, I think we as Christians need to uh, work very hard to cultivate language, even in our common conversation, about who we are and what we do for a living. However mundane or however uh, apparently insignificant the particular labor or work in which we're involved, uh, we should see ourselves, as Calvin very much emphasizes, as under the divine authority and summons. I'm answerable ultimately not to my boss or whomever is overseeing my work uh, on the job uh, in my workplace, but I'm ultimately answerable to God for my use of my time and the way in which I seek, uh, obviously with imperfection and sin, but seek to, to be consecrated to God's service and to the service of others in this particular calling. We use the language in our culture and society of pursuing a career. I always encourage people to say it's not so much the pursuit of a career, which is a form of self-advancement often, but it's the fulfillment of a calling, a vocation. And the Reformers were very clear on this, whether Lutheran or Reformed, both Luther and Calvin, were very much uh, emphasizing the priesthood of all believers and the necessity of viewing our calling whether it's a butcher or a baker or a candlestick maker, as a divine vocation, I've been called to serve. And I am a free servant of all, and um, that's the way I should live out my life. It should be evident. It should be clear to myself and as well to others that that's what it's about. Yeah. I like that. Um, it's it's very helpful to me to, to see that as a fulfillment of a calling a vocation, rather than just a mere pursuing of a career, I think that's that's uh, that's so very helpful to men and women as they go out into the world serving the Lord in whatever area that God has called them to. Um, I wanted to have an illustration, then segue to a question, but but let me just give you this illustration first that will help me formulate my question, I guess. Um, Suppose I have a very close and trusted friend, somebody I just dearly love, and um, maybe that friend has has created or overseen, let's say, 50 different diverse businesses. He's very productive. Uh, built them from scratch, um, everything from manufacturing to communication to health care to Christian camps, etc. Then another person comes along describing my friend, and uh, he perhaps even unintentionally misrepresents my trusted friend. Uh, He mentions maybe the ice cream shop that he started, but um, leaves everything else out, (laughs) Or, or maybe a counseling center that he started and leaves everything else out. I would feel almost offended, um, shouldn't maybe, but I would feel bad that um, he's even unintentionally putting down my my friend and and not recognizing how much good he has done. Uh, I keep that illustration in the back of the mind as I ask you this question. Um, 
I, I believe it's true that some folks um, feel that um, Jesus is not over everything. I mean, he he's Lord. You know, they they say he's Lord, but he's not really. I don't know how else to put it, but he's not really over the area of, let's say, education or or government or or that sort of thing. I, I think this comes out in discussions about the so-called one kingdom, two kingdom perspective. Maybe you can help my thinking here. I, I think you know where I'm, I'm, I'm headed here in my question. Yes, I, it's a very difficult question. There are issues related to the way in which the Lordship of Jesus Christ comes to expression and what that practically means, whether it be in the area of civil government, the political, the sphere of the state, and uh, in distinction from that of the church. The same is true in the areas of education and other areas. It's not an, you know, there's not a simple answer to some of these questions. But what, what concerns me about people who are very emphatic about distinguishing and dividing, discriminating between that portion or part aspect of our lives as believers that is uh, uniquely under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, redemptively, the Church, what I do on the Lord's Day in the context of the work and ministry of the Church, and then the remainder of my life is lived, as it's sometimes put, in a non-redemptive, natural order, the created order, in what sometimes is called my common or secular life, uh, beyond the realm or domain of the Church and in the Gospel and the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. It really, as a practical matter, when you carve out and to chop up, divide life into those kinds of compartments, you encourage people to uh, be fairly, if I may use such a provocative term, to have a secular view, a merely this-worldly view in terms of everything they do most of their life, actually. Let's just say, to use a proverbial expression, six days of the week, I'm serving alongside those who are non-believers, and it really hasn't anything particularly significant to do what I do in that world with my relationship to Jesus Christ. It tends to privatize your faith. It tends to uh, diminish the way in which you think and reflect upon what it means to serve Christ and to advance his kingdom, uh, to seek his kingdom and its righteousness in all of these areas of life that are beyond the uh, precincts of the church. I mean, take, take something as fundamental as marriage and family. Uh, surely the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the redemptive work of Christ by his word and spirit has profound implications, not only for our understanding of what marriage is, after all, the Church and the relationship of Christ to the Church is a reflection or, or exhibits what belongs at the core to marriage as a covenant between a man and a woman, um, a lifelong commitment that they make to each other. And the same is true even of the Church as a uh, 
spiritual family. Uh, the ordinances of marriage and family, though creational, are certainly also very closely linked biblically with God's redemptive program in creating a new humanity, calling the church as his bride to himself, engaging her and equipping, furnishing her, perfecting, sanctifying her, and all of her members for a life that is pleasing to him. So basically, my basic point is my concern about two kingdom thinking and emphases today is not so much that there's a proper awareness that the church has a particular calling that is distinct from that of the state and the like, but it is a very strong encouragement in it. It inevitably, even if unintentionally, encourages Christians to divide their lives into sacred and secular. This is where I'm in relationship to Christ, serving Him, and all of these other areas. I'm sort of on my own. I'm living in the same world with the same uh, activities and so on as others who are not in Christ or members of Christ. And my profession and confession of Jesus Christ doesn't really shape in a palpable way, a tangible way, what I'm doing in my home, my marriage, my workplace, my school, whatever that might be. With, with, having said all of that, again, I return to what I said a bit ago. I'm not suggesting that there are easy answers and that um, Christians in their daily vocations, on the technical side of things, sometimes people make the analogy with, well, what does that mean then if you're a plumber? Is there such a thing as Christian plumbing? Well, on the technical side, we live in a, a common world and we live in terms of the created order, and of course not. The technical side of it may well have much in common from whether one's Christian or not, and some non-Christians are more competent in some of these technical areas than Christians. But that doesn't um, deny the importance of thinking through very carefully and showing it, exhibiting it in the way in which you pursue your calling, that this is, again, a world that belongs to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and which he is uh, reclaiming for himself and for his glory. And uh, if my life shows that even in a small way, then that's proper and good. That's to be encouraged. I went, actually, if I may add one last thing, I went to a school, a Christian academy, I won't identify it, not to embarrass anyone, but I once received this uh, questionnaire you send to alumni, and the one of the first questions in the questionnaire was, uh, are you in full-time or in part-time Christian service? <laughs> now, I couldn't help but uh, offer a little smart remark in the margin. Uh, I don't like the way in which this question is being formulated. You might want to ask, in what form of Christian, what kind of Christian service are you engaged but not suggest, imply that anyone could be a part-timer in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we're to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, if we're to give our very bodies as living sacrifices, this whole notion that I could uh, do that in part of who I am as a, as a person in this world, 
and not in another part that doesn't resonate with me. Yeah, that's really helpful. And uh, you got the thrust of my question, and thank you for clarifying my own question to me. (laughs) Going back to where you first started, uh, the Great Commission, I like what you just said, too, about reclaiming the world for his glory. Um, You know, if Christ truly is over every sphere that we encounter in this world, it seems that um, he wants to make his power and his grace known throughout this world uh, in every realm, far as the curse is found, as the Christmas carol tells us. Um, I think we might be inclined to be overwhelmed at times when things don't go our way. Let's say we we visit or even live in a city where um, there's a heavy drug trafficking, broken families, and a lot of crime. It can be very discouraging for people, and yet God has a plan, and he's reclaiming things for his glory, to, to use your words. Can you encourage the folks to not give up and uh, view it from, from God's point of view, even, even in a dark situation? Well, I think this is, this is a significant part of the contemporary debate. Many advocates of a so-called two-kingdom perspective on the life of the Christian are able to take advantage of what might be called the fatigue, the discouragement, the beleaguered, increasingly situation that many of God's people, Christians, also in North America increasingly, are finding themselves in. And so because the... Lordship of Jesus Christ is not as openly manifest, is often resisted. The witness, testimony, and life of believers is increasingly less influential and culture-shaking. Let's just simply retreat. One of the more dramatic uh, illustrations of that is in what's called the Benedict Option these days where we retreat into little minority cultures, living apart from the world, preserving, hanging on to what we have until a better day comes when we can enter the world more directly again in the name of Christ. I think we just have to, you know, two kingdoms people will often argue that this reclaiming all of life or acknowledging Christ's lordship and all of life is unduly triumphalistic, and it's uh, very... Uh, academic in the sense of, well, who thinks there's any possibility at this point in history that we're going to make that big a difference as Christians in the public square, in the culture and society more broadly? Well, I I don't think our motivation ultimately should be what is the likelihood of our success. uh, The coming of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it will come, has come and will come in its fullness and perfection by God's grace and power, doesn't lie within our ability to bring it about. All we're called to do is, in our particular station and place, bear testimony, labor, work, seek first the kingdom, do as best as we are able, God helping us whether it be in our families, marriages, again, in our workplaces, businesses, 
uh, schools, homeschooling or Christian school or whatever it might be. Um, we we run up the flag for Christ's kingship wherever we can, and we make little steps. Maybe if I may borrow a term or phrase from the prophet, we don't despise the day of small things. We don't abandon the field just because the enemy seems to be prevailing. We carry on, and um, I don't know who it was, but I read a number of years ago an essay which said one of the attractions of the two kingdom perspective is it provides a kind of, maybe this is not fair, but he said it provides a kind of fig leaf to protect the nakedness of those who are suffering from what is often called culture war fatigue. Uh, because it seems, to put it bluntly, that the cause of Christ is losing ground, let's say, let's say just to generalize in our culture and society, well then let's abandon the field and uh, hunker down in our safe places. I just don't think that's, whatever the circumstance of God's people, whether they're successful, so so to speak, or not, I don't like that language, but whether a big difference is made or a little difference, we're just called to, um, a little bit like Paul's word to a preacher, preach the word in season and out of season with great patience and wait upon the Lord and his blessing. And I think all Christians, uh, especially in these difficult times culturally and societally, uh, in at least Western countries, North America, Christians need to take that to heart. Be patient continue to work, do by God's grace what you're called to do, bear testimony, establish little signposts of the presence of Christ's grace and kingdom, and uh, wait upon the Lord. Amen. Amen. That's a beautiful summary. And today we've been talking with Dr. Cornelius Venema, president of Mid-America Reform Seminary. Dr. Venema, if someone would like to Visit you online at your website. What's the address there? Uh, it's www.midamerica.edu. That's simple. And if someone has a question for you, they can email us here at the station. We'll pass it on to you. Our email address is ministry at redeemerbroadcasting.org. And uh, Dr. Venema, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I enjoyed it again. Thank you for having me. Dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.